Hey, 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 and welcome to the very first episode of Tech Noise, brought to you by Abstract.Tech. On this podcast, we're going to talk about all things emerging technology while having a little fun along the way. We're going to throw in some augmented reality, virtual reality, and bring on some guests to discuss things like blockchain and artificial intelligence. With that said, please welcome the co-host of the show. He is the tallest man in the room when at a daycare. A guy who still comfortably sleeps in a toddler onesie. From the city where their famous food is the same length of his arms. Straight from the chicken wing capital of the world, Buffalo, New York, your host, Eric Reitzer. Oh, thank you, sir. That was quite the intro. I uh, pleasure to be here. Um, now, before I introduce my co-host, I want to remind you that nobody is perfect. But I will say, he is looking rather put together today. His dentures are in, comb over is dyed, and his diaper looks dry. He left his can at home and really looks to be enjoying his newfound mobility with his hover-round scooter. Hailing all the way from Houston, Texas, a direct relative to Father Time himself, the CEO of Abstract, Mr. Brian Bogan. First thing I'd like to point out is I'm not even 40 yet. I mean, you had me fooled. I mean, you definitely look at least 50. You should you should actually start introducing yourself as like the grandpa of abstract. And then people will actually start giving you compliments about your age and like, wow, you look really great for 65. I'd probably go by like Papa Dukes or something. It's not a cool grandfather name. I don't know if Papa Dukes is a cool name. Mm. You could be like Gramps. I got to say, though, I do appreciate giving the short jokes. Now, I'm yeah. just a little over 5'8", and I don't think I've ever gotten to, you know, kind of pay back all yeah. of those short jokes I got over the years. But you, you allow me to do so. So for that, I thank you. Yeah, you know, I'm standing at a towering 5'6", uh, and I will say that that's about the, uh, I mean, I guess with my hair spiked up that is. And but, heels on. Uh, I, don't, I don't know about that, but, uh, you know, Jack Black is 5'6". Is do you know what else I am, though? I am eight inches taller than Danny DeVito, so I think that is really the barometer of my uh, my success here. So, well, now that you guys are here, well, thank you for listening, first off. But uh, since this is our first episode, I'd like to go into the structure of our podcast, and it's super simple. We're going to tackle three topics for the day, and when we're finished, we crack open a beer and play some ping pong until Brian starts sweating from his eyes. So let's introduce the topics for the day. So the first story, since we do a lot of work in the B2B space... We're going to talk about our companies spending their training budgets in the right place. Our second story, our virtual reality conference calls the Zoom meeting of the future. We'll explore what it is and learn more about the future of this tech. And the third story is all around the coronavirus and working remote. Are we destined for a remote workforce? How does this affect a company's culture? Well, let's jump right in. Our first story of the day, is your company throwing away 70% of its training budget? For the past 10 years, virtual reality has been the next big thing, but does it have a place for training workers? What do you think, Brian? Well, I think before we dive in to virtual reality, we kind of have to set up the reason why it could be a factor inside your training budget. Uh, when we think about that, we need to digest the idea of what we call experiential learning. And experiential learning is really the act of doing. And the more you do something, the more you really retain that knowledge and it becomes kind of just embedded in your brain. One of the studies that we look at a lot was one done in the 80s, which is called the 70-20-10 framework. 
And the idea is that up to 70% of the information that you actually store is all around experiential learning, where the 20 and 10 is more around peer-to-peer and traditional uh, learning like classes, videos, quizzes, that piece of it. Once you set that framework and you understand experiential learning and how it works, then you can start kind of exploring how virtual reality really applies inside the training world. I can tell you this. Talk about your your learning process through school. I took two years of Spanish. Two years. How much information did I remember from that? Like, how well can I speak Spanish after two years? I don't know. Probably not very well. I like four words. Yeah. Like four words. And I started looking at that as we started diving into experiential learning. The bottom line is I have a friend in Germany, and there's so many great English speakers there. And when we talked about how we learn the language, in my class, I learned a bunch of vocabulary. I remember as much as possible. I get through the vocabulary test, and that's it. I was never conversing in it. He tells me when he his first class that he took for English, he went in, and they immediately were speaking English. There was no German. So he was basically experiencing the language. He was conversing with the others in the classroom, and he was really getting involved more in the culture. It wasn't like he had a choice because he had to only speak English, whereas I was using my native language and learning Spanish, and it just didn't work. That's why I don't retain any of the information. I really don't have any memories or any experiences that I built during that class, and that's why experiential learning is so powerful. It's because you're building memories, and the more memories you build, that information sometimes isn't just something you you know. It's almost like the idea of muscle memory. It's the act of doing it because you're right. just so familiar with it. Mm-hmm. When we talk about virtual reality, how does this play into that? Well, the bottom line is when you are trying to do experiential learning, when you're dealing with facilities or like oil and gas in the field, you know the only way you can truly do experiential learning, well, at least before virtual reality, was to get in the field and follow and shadow someone and do this process over and over again and honestly hope you don't get hurt. Then once you do that, you start becoming more of an expert because you're doing it over and over again. Right. That idea of muscle memory takes over. Well, now that we have virtual reality in the picture, there's a way to do experiential learning without being stuck in the field. And so you know, virtual reality is an immersive experience. If you've never been in a virtual reality headset, It basically takes you out of the physical world and puts you in the digital world. It's fully immersive. You have the scale of the the environment, of the facility, and then you can create games inside that that allow people to excel and, and, and improve their learning. So virtual reality gives us that outlet now to, to apply experiential learning into, into training. Uh, one study actually that was really great is Miami Children's Hospital started kind of working through the data saying, is virtual reality working for us? So what they did is they compared their virtual reality training to their traditional training. And what they realized is with the traditional training, after one week, people were only retaining about up to 20% of the information. When they were doing virtual reality training, people were retaining up to 80% of the information after one year. So it was proving that the idea of this experiential learning inside virtual reality was working far better than the traditional. Okay, so how does a company get started with with VR? I mean, what's the cost for something like this and how does that fit in with a company's training budget? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is creating 
the gaming simulations, it's not cheap, right? You're creating a video game. And I think the problem is you can't just take the entire budget and say, oh, this is a better way to train, so let's move all of our training budget over here. So where you get started is you really look for certain scenarios or training modules that really can fit across your organization or something that is really specific that can help prevent like a catastrophe. And it may be a limited amount of users, but it just has a big impact. Um, you start with those training modules. And what you would do is you would put someone through a course of your safety requirements or if you have like life-saving rules or all these different aspects, you know, regardless of your industry, you take them through those courses. You just don't go all the way through where they're constantly getting hammered with classes and videos and all this stuff and it becomes very dry and boring. Right. You get them through it and then you put them in something like a VR training that they can kind of assess their level of knowledge on things like uh, life-saving rules or hazard identification, things like that. Mm. I guess why even bother spending money on the 30% if that's not the predominant way that we learn? Well, I think in some, I mean, in some cases you may be able to do that, but if you're talking about something like, let's say the industrial sector, right? Where, I mean, it is a very specific procedure or information. You still have to at least get a foundation of that, right? And putting that into a gaming simulation is doable, but it's just not cost-effective. So you put them through these courses or you put them through some basic information because they need to get familiar with it from a very high level. But I think that gaming simulation will help you identify if they really understand it and they absorb that information enough. And honestly, you kind of hope they fail at the beginning because the idea is that they get a the little bit of information and then they get into this gaming simulation. And I think people learn a lot more by failures, right, yeah. than successes. So you start them at a very basic level. You let them learn, you are able to score and assess them, and they can retake it and they can do this continuously until they get so familiar with the information that they're experts. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess if I was to put that into comparison for how I would see you using like a virtual reality training program, um, I mean, you could capture what you do at an everyday basis uh, as like an old man. So, I mean, like, as you, 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 lean over and try to put both of your socks on, you know, without getting out of breath, um, or, you know, just swinging your cane. You get really good at that, I'm sure. But there's different levels, I guess. So like level one would be like, you know, cleaning your dentures. And then level two could be like putting the polygrip on your dentures and then putting them in your mouth. And level, then level three, level three could be me swinging the cane and trying to hit you all the way down there. Oh, try to hit, like, swing as low as I can. Yeah. And if I hit you, I get bonus points. You know what? I can actually see that being a relatively successful training program. I would be an expert already. I think if you're still thinking through the idea of experiential learning and if it applies, like I think there's some stories that really kind of ring true. And I heard a story the other day that I think was a perfect way to kind of think through this. If you go to an event, right, from your company and you let's say you you fly there, it's 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 in the nation, but you fly out of state, you you get to the um you get to the location, you spend three days there. You stayed in an amazing hotel, had a really nice experience there. You probably got to sleep because you're away from your kids. Then you had a really nice steak dinner. You, uh, you sat through three days of seminars and learning all this amazing information. And you had an awesome happy hour event that you had, a, got to go to a really cool bar and experience that. So now you fast forward a year later. And when someone asks you about that event, what are you going to remember? You're probably going to remember the amazing hotel, 
that great steak you had and where you had it, and probably even the amazing bar, the atmosphere, and the drinks, and that sleep you got without the kids. So I think that is what really shows you that experiences have so much value inside your brain because those memories is what, is what makes it happen. And when we go to virtual reality and we think about that in a training aspect, you kind of can also tie in the idea of when people play video games. There are people, especially with the whole esports craze, which is the you know the pro level gaming, people are playing games for a couple years straight now. And it's the same thing in essence over and over again. Like your mission is the same, but your experience when you're playing that game is always different. And so you start remembering how to do things and muscle memory with the buttons and you're clicking faster and faster and you know these different strategies and you're basically getting better and better at this game all because of that experiential learning. And that's really what you're doing. Yeah. So I guess tying this back into how this benefits a company, um, you know, it's, it's all of those things, right? It's being more efficient in the way you do things. It's, it's also being able to kind of put a process into a vacuum and being able to really look a lot closer into how people are performing things and potentially identifying better ways to do it with capturing data and analytics and then bring it into, you know, a separate system that tracks that. It's also embracing the generations that you're training. When you talk about millennials, Gen Zs, these, these people who are coming in the training, they grew up playing video games and they learn really well that way. They don't learn that great when they have to sit in front of and listen to someone for eight hours. They're going to fall asleep. They're going to hear Charlie Brown's teacher within five minutes. So adding that gamification component, that gaming simulation really actually yields amazingly well to those generations that you're targeting. And that's really the big factor. Cool. So uh, to wrap that up, VR, good. You could also, in VR, feel taller. So now well, you can feel like every other normal male human being. Yeah, but why would I want to do that, though? I mean, I have so much leg room as it is on airlines. I mean, not that I'm traveling anytime soon, but yeah. You I'm found gonna, one perk. You yeah. found one perk. And I do agree with you. The airline side is definitely a big plus. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're so tall. I mean, you don't get to really benefit from it like I do. Freakishly tall, yeah. 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 A whole two inches. It's more like four, but it's it's like a fun size Snickers bar right there. Like four, four inches. (laughs) All right. On to our second story of the day. Will virtual reality conference calls catch on? One of the lesser known use cases for companies that are interested in VR is VR conferencing. Now amid a pandemic like COVID-19 and the exodus from modern workplaces to remote setups, how does this affect the AR VR conferencing as a use case? You know, this is an interesting one. Uh, When you see kind of the idea of VR conferencing on YouTube or, you know, when you're looking online, it looks really cool. And you think, man, this is amazing being able to sit inside a virtual reality conference. And I feel like I'm sitting with these people, um, you know, their avatars, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and doing a meeting. It looks really cool. And, and, you know, I think other people will say, no, that looks like a gimmick. It does look really cool. But, you know, who would use that? Right. I think the question is around it, it catching on is, is, is really – it's up for a debate. Um, I don't think right now is a time that you would, you would use it. I mean I think in a very select environment. So when you think about who would do it in this situation, it's probably going to be more of like the creatives and maybe someone who's working in the 3D space and they want to actually get inside like a toy maker. You know, you see, I've seen a demo online. It was more around AR but same application where they can drop the 3D object on the table and everyone can look at it in the 3D environment like it should be there and discuss it and collaborate. But 
Um, you know, it would be interesting to see if this would have happened in like 10 years or if it does, hopefully it doesn't, uh, to see if VR is now even a better application. Um, I still think that it, it, it's not on a, on a very, on a high scale. I don't think it's going to be like every company across the globe is going to be doing VR training. I just don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. And it's a hardware issue. Yeah. So, I mean, I, can't, I think you kind of uh, hit the hit the nail on the head there. So, in your opinion, the world isn't ready for VR conferencing yet from a mass adoption scale. Well, let me ask you a question. When you think about a corporation, right, and they provide, let's say, laptops and phones, like how expensive is that, right? It, when, you're, when you're saying, hey, I'm going to give everyone an iPhone or I'm going to give everyone a, a, a laptop, are they going to be spending money on the top-of-the-line laptop and, and, and phones? No. I mean, it's really hard to do that because it's super costly. So now if you want to add a $400 standalone headset, right, which is something like the Oculus Quest, um, are you really going to put that across your entire organization? Even when you know it's really not necessarily that useful for some of your divisions? Yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't really make cost sense to do that. No, you're right. I mean, because the thing is, like, every person would have to have a headset, mm-hmm. right? I think where you where it could apply is if people had a headset, then maybe they could remote into a, a conference and do it in VR, where others may be doing it from a you know from a laptop. Right. But you know, with the outlets that everyone's using, with things like Zoom, Skype, all those different platforms, like that's such an easy thing for them to use, and they can already embrace the hardware they have in place. The benefit of VR conferencing, at least for you is you can be in a conference and not have to sit on phone books to look over the table. <laughs> you, you can actually yeah. be over table height, freakishly tall if you wanted to. You really have the choice on what avatar you'd want to use. Yeah, the only reason Abstract even has phone books for me to sit on is because you're the only one that gets them still. That was good. Mm-hmm. He's getting better at this, I'm telling you. He's getting better. I think when you, when you explore VR conferencing, if you've never experienced it, and, and by the way, we'd love to hear feedback. If you've actually gone through this and, and used VR conferencing in your company, please share it with us. Uh, we'd love to hear those uh, those stories and use cases. Um, but when I see it online, um, and, I, and I've been in you know the, the Oculus Quest obviously many times, um, I just don't feel like it's it's the fastest way for me. Uh, I mean, one thing you also aren't aren't discussing is if I wanted to like for collaborating in VR, right? collaboration on documents or anything like that, like I still need an outlet to type. Yeah. Right. And so I'm not going to be toggling between my headset or put up my virtual desktop or anything like that. I don't see it being at a mass scale in 10 years. Um, I see it being used in a limited capacity based off of like creative divisions who want to collaborate on some 3d assets and things like that. Um, and that's probably as far as it goes. Yeah. I don't think I, I'm just trying to think if I had, if you told me today that I had a, a meeting, with a virtual reality headset. I mean, obviously it'd be on my head, but I'd be meeting with somebody else. Uh, I don't think I'd be amped up about it. I don't know if I would like it. It just seems kind of, uh, I don't know, it just seems almost unnecessary, but I guess for, for depending on the purpose, right? Like, it, you know, if I was looking at a prototype or something like that, it might be immensely helpful to view it in, in like a 3d environment versus, uh, you know, just trying to look at it on a 2d computer screen well your your first uh piece of feedback was more around it being new like you're just not familiar with it you haven't done enough to make it that comfortable but i bet if you did it 20 times you'd probably be pretty comfortable with a vr conferencing call right but the part of like it being useful like imagine you're an architect and you needed to collaborate with your team and then the team is you know all over the world and you want to be able to drop the 3d model of the building 
in front of them and let them see a room and do all of these exploring. Literally, we could drop it on the table, see it from a high level, and even if we wanted to dive into the room, we could warp everyone into the building, right? And now we're standing in a room looking around the building and the design, and we're discussing the features of that. I almost see this as a different kind of use case for this technology, but for VR conference calls, I mean, for business purposes, it doesn't seem, at least to me, to have a, a solution at scale. But like, think about it from like a consumer-facing aspect. So I know one of the things that uh, we, we've also, I'm sure, seen is uh, you know this concept of like you could watch a football game and then it's right in front of you on the t- on the you know coffee table in front of you and you're like looking top down at it. You know, are there different solutions from like the more entertainment side that you could entertain with the VR conferencing type of thing, where you could like be in the room as somebody's giving? I mean, like the president's giving a, a you know a press conference or something like that, and then pff, you zoom right in or something. Yeah, I mean, they're already starting to do that. I mean, that's already becoming a thing. I mean, you can go to a vi- uh, a football game. And they have a like a I've seen it where they have a seat set up with basically like a 360 camera rig, mm-hmm. and you can you can kind of remote in and you're in your headset and it's like you're sitting in the seat, yeah. right? So now you're looking around. You're now you're not getting that full like depth of feel that you would yet. I mean, eventually they're going to probably have cameras that give you you know that kind of 3D perspective, mm-hmm. but they do allow you to remote in and kind of get that broadcast from the seats. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, that's no different than what you mentioned, like hearing the president's speech, like sitting there and and looking around and, and like you're sitting in the seat uh, mm-hmm. with with the reporters, like all of that is already being done. And those are kind of two separate things, though, too, because I mean, 360 video is basically just a flat video. It's just the way it's stitched. That's kind of giving the, the impression of immersion, I guess. But then the other side of that would be kind of what you mentioned before, but the avatar is like that's kind of its own completely separate, like you know, game type environment versus the more reality based kind of environment of, you know, like three, you know, 360 video. Yeah. I mean, one's basically a game. You're sitting there in an online multiplayer game, interacting with people who have, who have kind of, you know, joined your conference table, right? You're at the table experiencing it with you. And the other one is really just a live broadcast. You're sitting there watching a video, but you're just watching it where you can look around. But I, I will say it still gives you that, that kind of gives you that immersive experience because you feel like you're sitting there and you have control over your movement just like you would sit there. If I look to the right, I'm going to look to my right and I'll see people next to me. Mm-hmm. But the interactivity is completely gone um, in that situation. You might be able to toggle seats, right? That'd be kind of cool. Things like that and yeah. switch different views. So I think where that comes into play is the most annoying thing about sitting at a football game, for example, is if you're on like the 50-yard line, that's ideal. But if you're kind of offset, like let's say – uh, near the end zone, like you're losing everything on the other side. So you end up looking up at the giant screen they yeah. have. But being able to maybe toggle views between end zones or change cool your perspective. Be, if you have a pair of every seat in a stadium comes with a VR glasses or something like that, or you could just pop that pop that on when you're, when, like you said, you're sitting on one end zone, then you can actually switching perspectives while you're at the venue. It sounds like a topic for another day. Might be. All right, um, so on to our third and final topic of the day. Now, we're a month into the shelter-in-place orders here in Magnolia, Texas, but what do you think is the catalyst for success for companies large and small when it comes to keeping their workforce productive? I know we're in this like tumultuous time right now. Everyone's kind of uh, isolated, 
So how do companies keep everybody together? I mean, some companies are fortunate that they've already embraced at least some form of remote work, right? Um, especially when you think about like software companies, a lot of them use remote workers because you have things like Slack for internal communication. Um, you have the ability to have web-based project management systems, all these different things that just, they, it just doesn't require people to be in a physical location together. Um, now, the companies that didn't have that in place, like they're, de they're dealing with a much tougher transition, right? Um, however, what you hope is that they embrace this and learn from it and maybe find some benefit about remote work. And this doesn't mean they need remote workers, but when you have someone who's working remote, the dynamic of how you basically hold them accountable, as an example, is so different than if someone's in a physical location. Most traditional companies, when there's someone at a physical location, they monitor the time they're there, right? That is it. You're there from this time to this time and you're working. But how productive are they being, right? Yeah. When they work remote, it's kind of weird. They're gone. So now you're like, are they even doing anything? What are they doing? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make it any different than when they're in the physical location because I could be at the physical location wasting half my day staring at the wall because I hate my job. Yeah, but your butt is in the seat. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> but what's it doing in the seat, you know? Exactly. So like, I, I think the, the reason why I bring this up is you hope that traditional companies that have been using meaning traditional kind of um, ideology when you're dealing with how people work start understanding that when people are remote, you have to track productivity. You know, you need to make sure that they are delivering value. And that value can be done in f like four hours, maybe remote with what they were doing physically in eight. Mm. For example, meetings. Yeah. When you're in a physical location, people tend to have meeting after meeting or meetings for meetings, right? And when you work remote, you're not as excited to do that because virtual meetings just really aren't, aren't as fun. They're not as good. There's not as much back and forth. Uh, people talk over each other because of delays, all those different things, right? Um, so if they're not embracing some form of the remote work based off of this pandemic, then I think they're making a massive mistake. They should take this time to start understanding how they, how they uh, evaluate the productivity side of their business and start learning how to really track this because what that's going to do is not only make the company perform better, it's going to give the employees a better life balance because now they say, if I'm productive and I go and I work hard, then you know what? Maybe I work less in the week. You know, I don't have to put in 50 or 60 hours when I'm normally just kind of grinding it out because I can deliver that value and I don't have to sit there and do just purely time, time tracked like evaluations. Right. So I guess, you know, when this is all said and done, if there is even some sort of like timeline to that. Do you think that companies actually stick with this in the long term or do you think that um, we all kind of rubber band back to the office? Well, I can tell you from my side, I'm kind of a believer of both. Like I really think that working remote has its benefits and working in a physical location has its benefits. Ideally from my side, I like having a hybrid version. I like having both. The benefit of the physical side is that I get to build these relationships and collaborate with people you know, in front of me. Um, take you for instance, as much as I've been picking on you and you've been picking on me, that's part of our chemistry. You and I have worked long enough together and we've developed a friendship that, oh, yeah, I know it's cringe, cringe. Um, 
that that we can playfully banter back and forth, and it's all just a joke. But that's just how our relationship is, right? Is it though? <laughs> and we wouldn't have that if we were sitting there just commenting through Slack and we saw each other once a year or once every six months, right? So for me, I, I have no problem working remote. I have not changed my mentality about any of the people on our team since they've been working remote. We 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 basically evaluate people's performance based off of the value they're bringing, not the time they're putting in. Now we like to associate the idea that we want to we want to put enough on their plate that they're working and they're not putting in 10 hours a week, but we also don't want to overflow their plate where they're just grinding it out and they and and their life becomes miserable. Right. So like if if one of our guys needs to stay home or girls needs to stay home to to wait for a worker at their house and they're going to be there for four hours, I don't want them to have to take a half day off if they don't want to. You know, if they want to work yeah. from home, they can work from home, and none of that changes for us. Going to the traditional companies, um, I think a lot of them are going to go back to the office. I yeah. mean, they already have the infrastructure in place. It's what they're used to. It's what they're comfortable comfortable with. I think that some will probably start considering adding this remote or you know remote abilities for some of their personnel. Mm. Um, a great a great uh, example of this is uh, one of my friends. They have a company that is all like data entry. You know, you're working from a computer, and they wanted to add kind of a new element to their culture. So they started uh, rolling out uh, remote days, two days a week, and and you got to pick your days. Uh, and it was kind of nice. They, they, the people started getting used to that. And I'll tell you what, thank God they did because they did it before this happened. And now they already had the structure in place to handle everyone going remote. If you think about what they wouldn't have, what they would have faced if they wouldn't have already put that in place, right? right. They would have been in serious trouble. They would have had to figure out block scheduling and all this difficulty. But because they rolled that out ahead of time, it really actually probably saved them. Yeah. Um, and so I think other companies need to look at that look at that model and say, how can we sometimes embrace remote work or less meetings or flex schedules or however it is to make it more comfortable for employees? Yeah. You know, I was kind of thinking about this the other day, you know, when companies do <clears throat> like their SWOT analysis, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. Um, I'd be curious to see how many companies had pandemic down as a threat to their business. And now I think any business that starts up, they're going to revisit that. And it's, if it happened once, it could happen again. So regardless of if things do go back to normal in three, six, nine months, whatever it is, there are going to be contingency plans in place that need to be in place by companies to prepare for instances like this in the future because you just never know. For sure. I think that um, I think it's, it's funny because no one ever would anticipate something like this happening. Some companies are going to have to figure out, like, is it even worth the investment? Because they're like... You know, we is this ever going to happen again? Yeah. And I think that's that's a terrible way to think. But at the same time, like you have to balance out how much you invest in this. You would think they've already put enough in place now mm -hmm. to be able to do that. Yeah, but, I mean, a lot of people got caught with their pants down though this time. You know? Yeah, but like companies like us, it's really easy for us. We already have the the systems in place, but like it's re, it's easy for us to quickly roll out like a, a Slack uh, platform, right? To be able to start interacting with each other and things like that. Mm -hmm. Some of these corporations who have like crazy security requirements. If they didn't already have that in place, could you imagine what they had to do the moment this happened when they're like, oh, man, we got to get moving? Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. Right. So, you know, I think I think this virus should be lessons for everyone. I mean, you you learn more from things like this yeah. than you do from like all the success that you're dealing with. Right. When success is there, you just keep rolling.
yeah. things like this happen and it, and it backtracks you and makes you evaluate what's going on. Like you have to think about ways to grow outside of this, but more importantly, like remote work is going to be required. And, and even if, if a virus isn't there, something like, uh, you know, something like COVID-19 companies should have an infrastructure in place for remote work. And if you do that, now you need to figure out ways to add value to your employees by having that in place. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the value and the justification of cost can come in because you can use that more on the regular, right? right. Than if just a, a, a random crazy pandemic happens. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think if, I think if used in the correct way, it can be a morale boost, you know, giving them a little bit of freedom and, uh, flexibility. You know, they don't have to always be stuck inside the box. I know personally for me that um, I'm going to add at least some form of remote work just so I don't have to stare at your face five days a week. And that is a major benefit for me. Yeah, you know, I do my hair once every now and again. You're going to miss it, though, if you're at home. You have beautiful feathery hair. Thank you. Well, that concludes the first episode of Tech Noise. We hope you enjoyed our playful banter as well as the content inside the podcast. Uh, Please stay tuned for the next version and we will hear you, not see you, we will hear you next Next time. time.